What is truth? Seldom black and white, usually complex. The fifth column goes on the inside in search of it. A few yards from the station there is a wooden cross. It's such a small monument, you could almost miss it. And beneath it it's written in Ukrainian, this cross has been erected in memory of the people who died in the Great Hunger of 1932 and 33. Not much of a memorial, or maybe as many as 10 million who died in the Great Hunger. She noticed that there was a hand appearing from the stove. And then she called the police. By the moment when neighbors and police came, she already ate half of this child. When uh, she was asked why did she do that with her own children, she answered that uh, they would die anyway. Maria Drobitko was 17 when starving people turned cannibal, thanks to Stalin's terror famine. Today, her face etched with the lines of 93 years, she's a living witness to a great lie. For back in 1933, here in the eastern Ukraine, not far from the border with Russia, the official Soviet line proclaimed, there is no famine. One man who told that great lie was Walter Duranty of the New York Times. What he admired was the ruthless use of power in which human beings were, as it were, clay in the hands of an elite. John Gray, former professor of European thought at the London School of Economics and a philosopher who argues that communism and fascism were both political religions. The power elite of Soviet Russia could, as it were, do what they will with the Russian population, kill them off, move them around, destroy their way of life, try to create new ways of life and so forth. And that's what he admired, particularly given that he saw himself as belonging to a kind of human elite, an elite of people who had transcended ordinary morality. So when he was within that elite, he felt in his natural element. But he never had illusions, in my view, which he lost. He always had this esoteric, occultist, semi-occultist philosophy in which he was entitled to lie, he was entitled to deceive. For much of the 20th century, many on the left genuflected before the Red Star. Lenin supposedly called them useful idiots, so-called intellectuals, who justified communism's crimes in the name of progress. Novelist Doris Lessing was one of a party touring Stalin's Russia, and she remembers one man standing out against the crowd. He said... I'm going to tell you that everything you have heard on this trip is nonsense. The truth is quite different. Now, for him to say this at all was brave of him, to put it mildly. Everybody around him is all very jolly and upbeat and nice and sweet. The thing was, he was completely out of line with anything going on. For me, it was shattering. Would Doris say that this made her a useful idiot? Yes, I would. That's what my role was. I was taken around and shown things as a useful idiot. I would then go away and say, oh, it's very nice. 
which now I can't understand myself thinking that, but I did, you see. I can't understand why I was so gullible. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. My Fair Lady was based on the play Pygmalion, written by George Bernard Shaw, the Irish iconoclast who worshipped Stalin. Donald Rayfield, Emeritus Professor of Russian at Queen Mary's London, an author of Stalin and his hangmen. Shaw had really strong dictatorial instincts. He was in favour of very summary solutions to the world's problems, and he rather liked the idea of a revolution that swept unnecessary people away. It's something rather like many of the characters in his plays, shocking the world by um, overriding all the existing conventions. The man who inspired My Fair Lady was a bit of a dictator? Well, Professor Higgins is a bit of a dictator, a bit of a Stalin, if you think what he does to to Eliza. He doesn't shoot her. No, he completely transforms her. Shaw overlooked the starvations and the shootings. What he liked was the complete turning upside down of a society. That as far as he was concerned, what Professor Higgins was doing to a working-class girl, Stalin was doing to a working-class of an entire country. This is the entrance to Perm 36. It's a real-life Stalinist concentration camp. It was started in 1946, and it was kept open and full of prisoners, open for business, long past Stalin's death and up till the late 70s, when it was finally closed down. There's an ocean of barbed wire... Also, some of it's electrified. I see those white ceramic cups which would carry the electric current. There is a sense of real bleakness, a kind of barbed wireness of the mind. And the only living thing is a grey cat licking its tail. Back then, in Stalin's day, that cat wouldn't have lived very long here. It would have been eaten because people were so desperately hungry. Durante's nemesis, the man who risked his life to tell the truth about Stalin's famine, was Gareth Jones, a Welsh journalist who'd written a great piece about flying with Hitler. Next to his SS bodyguard, the Fuhrer looked dwarf-like. To this day, the full truth about the famine is locked away in Russia's secret police archives. Shootings, deportations, grain exports, while thousands queued for bread. Mass graves. While Durante partied in Moscow, Jones sidestepped the secret police ban and made his way to the famine zone. Jones's niece, Cyril Colley, explains how. Because he spoke Russian fluently... He managed to go to a station outside Moscow and go on a peasant's train, one on a third-class train, to Ukraine. He got off the train just before the border of Ukraine and he walked along the railway and he met peasants, he spoke to them. He was apprehended by the secret police and he was then taken to Kcharkov where he saw the famine. He saw thousands of people queuing for bread outside a shop. Almost 80 years on, I'm following in Jones's footsteps. The famine killed millions across the Soviet Union, but it was at its worst here in the eastern Ukraine, and Jones wrote up his experiences in his notebook. I walked along through villages and 12 collected farms. Everywhere was the cry, 
There is no bread. We are dying. I tramped through the Black Earth region because that was once the richest farmland in Russia and because the correspondents have been forbidden to go there to see for themselves what is happening. In the train, a communist denied to me that there was a famine. I flung a crust of bread which I'd been eating from my own supply into a spittoon. A peasant fellow traveller fished it out and ravenously ate it. I threw an orange peel into the spittoon and the peasant again grabbed it and devoured it. The communists subsided. Our first famine survivor is 86 years old. The moment I asked Maria about the journalist who said there was no famine, Maria positively bristled with rage. They must stop lying. And also she reminded the story about Maria Sadrista, who was a member of party, and she had a horse, and she was going around the village and gathering all those people who were suffering and bringing them to the cemetery, even if they were alive. If someone is telling that uh, there was no famine, half of the village died. Our second survivor is even older. At 93, Maria is a tiny figure in her gloomy kitchen, with gnarled hands and a weather-beaten face. And yet, down through the years, her memory of that time of dread has remained as sharp as a knife. She's crossing herself as she's talking. She told the story of a woman. She had a child, but people didn't see this child for a long time. And her neighbor came to the house to look what is going on, and accidentally she noticed that there was a hand appearing from the stove. And then she called the police, and the police took this woman out of the village. By the moment when neighbors and police came, she already ate half of this child. When uh, she was asked why did she do that with her own children, she answered that uh, they would die anyway. So just as we're going, Maria crossed herself and I said, I swear to God, this is the truth on my life. The truth about Stalin's famine did not emerge at the time and has always been smudged. To this day... No one knows exactly how many died because no one has been allowed access to the archives to count. But for his work, Joranti won a Pulitzer and the Cherry on the Cake, an exclusive interview with Stalin. Mugridge found himself out of a job. And Jones? In 1935, he was murdered in China by bandits, although later it was discovered that the travel company organising the trip was a front for the Soviet secret police. I think history tends to reverse the judgments uh, that are made in people's lifetimes. So Walter Durante may have been awarded a Pulitzer Prize and been admired as a man with contacts in the highest place, but I think now he's generally abominated as an example of a, a traitor to truth, a traitor to journalism, and a traitor to the millions that were killed and whose deaths he denied. Whereas Gareth Jones was regarded as a left-wing eccentric, insisting in a left-wing newspaper that dreadful things were happened that other people denied and other people hadn't seen. He died a terrible death. We don't quite know how and what at the hands probably of the Soviet secret police in the wilds of China. And it is only posthumously we realize the man was virtually a saint. 
So it's just a lesson. You have to wait till long after your death for a full recognition of your merits and your faults. In Soviet times, they used to whisper, you never know what's going to happen yesterday. But even today, the airbrushing of history is no laughing matter in Russia. Donald Rayfield. Russian education has been now brought firmly under control of official propaganda, and Stalin as the great manager, the great war leader, has been rehabilitated. And all the inconvenient things, like the massacre of 22,000 Polish officers, deaths by famine and deportation of millions of peasants, all that is something that Russian children no longer know. We get Russian students in London, 18, 19, who have no idea that anything terrible happened under Stalin at all. And I'm most surprised to read about it and hear about it and think it must be some sort of West European propaganda. And Donald Rayfield fears that under Vladimir Putin, the Soviet secret police's way of going about things hasn't changed that much. The Russian security services try to concentrate on killing only Russian citizens or former Russian citizens. And critics of the Kremlin merely find that uh, they don't get to go to Russia again and they're not invited to all the goodies. And Putin has been holding these meetings in the sanatoria in the Valdai Hills, a very nice spot between St. Petersburg and Moscow. And uh, journalists go there and they're usually entranced by Putin's skill, rather like Margaret Thatcher's in handling journalists. And then they're allowed a glimpse of his notebooks and they see there's Putin quoting Omar Khayyam, reading Ukrainian in the original. They think, what a cultured man this is. And they don't realize how all this is carefully prepared. To hear more of our podcasts and to have your say, visit our website, www.thefifthcolumn.co.uk.